For the last few months, uh, as our church has been reading the Bible together here on Sunday mornings, we've been reading through the life of Jacob. And our sermons have all been focused on listening for God's address to our church here in these passages of Scripture. Last week, we read Genesis chapter 32, which we read this morning, and on through to Genesis chapter 33. And we saw that Jacob had undergone an enormous change. Those of you who have been with us during the summer, those of you who are familiar with the story of Jacob, you recognize that in this chapter, we see the example of someone who actually changed as an adult. True change, deep change. And, And for Jacob, his change was good. It was a good change, really good. Jacob actually became a better person. Now, his change occurred through his suffering. 20 years, Jacob is gone through a difficult time. For 20 years, he's been working for a deceptive, conniving, abusive boss. If any of you have ever had a difficult job, this is, a, this is suffering. He's actually been something of a slave to his father-in-law. Now, maybe not any of you, but there are people in this world who live in families that are dysfunctional. This can be difficult. He's married to two women and the, ten- the tension there has reached moments of utter insanity. The details are there in the sermons over the last few months. But the point at hand this morning is that Jacob has been changed in the midst of his struggle and pain and suffering. And his change has been for the good. But all of us know it doesn't have to be this way. Suffering can also change us in bad ways. It's a massive mistake. To romanticize suffering. When we suffer, when we struggle, when we are in danger, there is always the enormous potential for our own drowning, for our own disaster. All of us know people who have been changed by suffering and their change has been very negative. Can you think of someone Trapped in an abusive job, a difficult marriage, a cycle of poverty, a series of unfortunate events. A person, maybe it's you, maybe it's your friend, maybe it's your own family. A person that through their suffering, through their difficult events, becomes more bitter, more cynical. Develops secret sins, bad habits. And yet here's Jacob. And through his suffering, through his difficult decades, through his experience in a deeply dysfunctional family, he grows into a better person. How? How does this happen? Why does one person enter into suffering and become bad, worse, more problematized, and another person come, enter into a similar or even worse and become better? Well, let's be very careful. There is no exact answer to that question. There is a deep mystery here. Some good people 
get bad through suffering. And some bad people get good through suffering. Some Christian folks, suffering happens to them and it ruins them. Some non-Christian folks, suffering happens to them and it improves them. There is a deep mystery here. And everything I say in the rest of this sermon is not meant to overlook that. I'm not trying to act as if life is this perfect formula. But it is possible to improve through suffering. Now, for many of us, to do that, we need to open our lives up to mental health resources, psychology, psychiatry, and therapy. That's definitely an important way God works for our good in this fallen and broken world. But in this passage this morning, we see another way that God works for our good through suffering. So I don't want to oversimplify, but I do want to show something in the life of Jacob that is a unique insight. It's a helpful insight. When it comes to suffering, a fundamental key is prayer. Prayer. When we look at Jacob in Genesis chapter 32 through 33, we see this man who has become much, much better, a much more godly person. And central to all of his positive growth and transformation is that Jacob has learned how to pray. A resource that our creator has given us that can be of enormous benefit even especially when we're in trouble and when we're in danger when we are struggling and suffering is prayer. Real prayer. Serious prayer. Not some little thing tacked on to the periphery of our lives. No, the prayer Jacob prays in Genesis 32 this is not the kind of prayer that comes easily or naturally. I'm not talking about your natural prayers. I'm not talking about the kind of praying that arises spontaneously. That is not the prayer we see Jacob pray here. I'm talking about real prayer, not childish prayer. I know there's a certain line in Scripture where childlikeness is a virtue, but there's another line in Scripture where childlikeness is not a virtue. We use that word in both ways. The kind of prayer... That will help you in your suffering become a better person is not prayer that comes naturally. It is not prayer that comes easily. It is the prayer that you learn. If you have your Bible, I hope that you do. If you worship with us, find one, steal one, bring one with you. Matthew chapter, turn to the right a few pages from Genesis Matthew chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible, use your table of contents. That's the best way to get familiar. I want to show you that there is a form of prayer that can only be learned. It's different than your natural form of prayer. It's different than what your children will do if you don't teach them how to do otherwise. Prayer that must be learned. Look with me at Matthew chapter 6. This is the center of Jesus' most famous sermon. The Sermon on the Mount. And in the center of the center of Jesus' most famous sermon is a teaching on prayer. Not an encouragement just to do it, but a teaching how to do it. 
Look at Matthew chapter 6 verse 5. Here's Jesus. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. In other words, don't pray this way. And notice it doesn't say hypocrites pray red prayers. It has nothing to do. All your prejudice against red prayers, written prayers, spontaneous prayers, all of that needs to go out the door. It's unreliable. It's been programmed more by Jane Austen than it has been by Jesus Christ. Romanticism says if you really feel it, you'll say the truth. Try that in your relationship. The deepest feeling you have, just let it out there. And when you're really intense, let it out there even more. See if that always works. Don't be like the hypocrites. Then look at verse 6. But when you pray, and then he says something. Then look at verse 7. And when you pray, do not. And then look at verse 8. Do not. And then verse 9. Pray like this. Now, I don't want you to get lost in the details of what he says do and don't do. All I want you to know is that Jesus says you have to learn how to pray. And there's a whole lot of things that you're doing that you've got to change. In other words, there is a form of praying that must be learned. Here is Jesus in the center of his most famous prayer teaching how to pray. Pray like this, he says. Parents, you've got to do that with your kids. You've got to grow them up. You've got to say to them, wait, you've got to interrupt their praying. Say, okay, okay. Wait, wait, stop right there. Pray like this. Friends who are talking to other friends about how to relate to the God and Savior, Jesus Christ, you need to teach them how to talk to him. Don't just say to them, go for it, but get in there. Well, there's a jerky way of doing this, obviously. Praying. My point is that real praying, the kind of praying that Jacob demonstrates in the hour of crisis, is not spontaneous prayer. It is learned prayer. Jacob's prayer is the prayer of a person who has learned how to pray with maturity and skill. Now, there are different types of prayer. There's prayers of praise and love and adoration. Martin Luther is famously quoted, we don't know if he actually said it or not, as saying, he who sings prays twice. Those of you who drive around all day listening to K-Love and singing those songs, that is absolutely a form of prayer. You know this. There have been moments in your life where you're just singing out the songs you learn in church, the songs from, of hymns from your childhood. There are these moments where the songs on the radio, some of you, the music we sang this morning wasn't your heart music. Some of you it was. But when you get into those kind of songs, you can, that is a form of praying. Don't, I'm not trying to belittle that. Then there's prayer of confession. Psalm 51, David's really messed up. He's committed adultery. He's committed murder. And Psalm 51 is his remarkable, God, I'm sorry, I really messed up. That's a form of praying. But we're talking about a different prayer this morning. What kind of prayer is Jacob doing? It's asking God for help. This morning we're talking about the kind of prayer when you are in a moment of suffering and you need God's help. That's different, right? It's different than just praising God. It's different than confessing your sin. We're looking at a particular type of prayer. We're looking at a type of prayer that must be learned. A prayer for help. And when we look at Jacob's prayer for help, it is a very mature prayer. 
for help. Look at, go back to Genesis chapter 32. Let's look at this prayer Jacob prays. Genesis 32, looking at verses 9 through 12. I loved hearing Jenny read this prayer. It was so obvious to me that Jenny prays. Sometimes when people read scripture in church, I wonder, do you know you're reading the word of God? Right? And sometimes I know it's nerves and lots of things. But there are these moments when you hear people reading a letter from their lover, right? And it's life. Jenny read this like she prays. I know she does. Look at verse 9. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mother's. With the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. This is a model prayer asking God for help. Look, that's a good thing to, if you write in your Bible, to go to the front page and say, when I need help, and write Genesis 32, verse 9 through 12. This is a model version. I told you parents need to tell their kids, pray like this. I'm your priest. I'm telling you, pray like this. Write it down. Read it. Learn it. Now let me point out a few things about it that are so mature. First of all, notice how he calls on God. I'm going to point out five things. The first one. Notice how he calls on God. O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. O Lord. Now many of you, your Bible has a different font there. Lord is in small caps or italicized or something. And there's probably a footnote somewhere in your introduction to your Bible that tells you that's because this is the particular name of God, Yahweh. What I want you to see is that he calls on God by a particular name. Now this is one of the things we've been working with our children a lot on. We've noticed that our kids, when we pray at meal times, when we have family prayer time, they'll often say, dear God, and just go right into it. Just so you know, God is generic, right? God just, it can mean this higher being. But he, he says, no, there is a particular God I'm praying to. The God who made covenant with Abraham and Isaac. The God represented in scripture. The God who's in covenant with me. So I've been saying to our kids lately, I've been interrupting their prayers a lot and saying, call on God as your father. Because that's one of the things, that's one of the great privileges Jesus gave us, right? Jesus alone is the son of God. And yet when we are caught up in Christ, in redemption, we are adopted as his brothers and sisters. And so because of Christ's work on the cross, we get to also call on God as father. How you call on God matters. Number two, and there's more to say there, but uh, number two, notice when he prays, notice not only how he calls on God, but notice he says what's really on his heart. This is a very simple thing, but go back up in Genesis chapter 32. So here's Jacob. God told him back in chapter 31, go home. 
He's a long way from home. So he says, yes, God. He starts heading home. And he finds out that his brother Esau, whom he hasn't seen in 20 years, is coming toward him with 400 men. Now, throughout the Old Testament, when a man is traveling at a rapid rate of speed with 400 men, it is a militia. No joke. Look, all through 1 Samuel, see, there are these various moments where there's a leader with 400 men, and it always means a, a warring militia. I'm convinced Jacob, Esau is coming to kill Jacob. So how does Jacob respond to this? Now, what has Jacob got? Jacob's got a couple of wives. He's got all these children, right? He's got all this, this livestock. He can't move fast. He's not nimble. He's incredibly vulnerable. So look what it says when he finds out this army is coming toward him, led by a man that the, the reason Jacob left home 20 years ago was because he had lied and deceived Esau one too many times and Esau had developed a murderous rage and Jacob's mom discovered Esau was about to kill Jacob. So his mom said, you better get out of town. So he does. 20 years later, he starts headed toward home. Here's the same brother that the last thing we were told was, he's going to kill Jacob, coming with an army. So it doesn't take an English literature major to understand this is not a good situation. In fact, look what it says in chapter 32, verse 6. When Jacob heard Esau is coming to meet you and there are 400 men with him, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. That is the PG version of what he said. (laughs) Greatly afraid and distressed. He didn't break into Shakespearean English at that moment. So in this great fear and distress, when he prays, look what he says to God in verse 11. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. Listen, here's the second thing I want to say to you about how to pray for help. When you pray, take a good deep breath and speak to God as if he's sitting right in front of you and talk to him like a friend and tell him what is on your heart. Don't sanitize it. Let it out there. If your heart is full of love and joy in God, if you'd feel drawn to him in love, tell him that. And if you are dry and you don't want to pray and you feel cold inside, then tell God that you no longer feel any love for him. That everything is a terrible blank to you. That he wearies you. That his presence does not even move you. That you long to leave him for the most trifling activity. That there are a thousand things you'd rather be doing right now than talking to him. That he bores you. That you will not feel happy till you have left him and can turn back to whatever it was you were doing before you started praying. Tell him all the evil there is about yourself. Talk to him about your miseries and ask him to cure them. Say to him, dear God, look at my ingratitude. Look at my inconstancy, my infidelity. Take my heart. I don't want to give it to you. I don't want you to have it. I don't even know how to give it to you. Give me crosses necessary to bring me back under your yoke. Have mercy on me in spite. Pour it all out there. 
When you are needing help, let it out there. When you go to God in prayer, without hesitation, tell him everything that comes to mind. And do it with all the simplicity and familiarity of a little child sitting on his mother's lap. This is a moment where we should be childlike, right? Have you ever been in a conversation with a child and it's like, you know, stream of consciousness stuff? It's just all over the place. This is what you need to do. You need to have that childlike freedom. That's the second thing. Notice a third thing. Be humble. Be grateful. Look at verse 10. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan and now I've become two camps. Look, he said, 20 years ago I came here as a refugee with nothing. And now look at me. The reason I'm in so much trouble is because I got so much stuff. Do you see what he did? Even in that moment, he... He humbled himself before his creator. So look, there's this kind of irony, isn't it? Yes, on the one hand, we approach God with familiarity. But on the other hand, he is not Santa Claus. You don't live there. You don't stay there. That's not the sin qua non of prayer. That's not all there is to it. When you are asking God for help, it is a good habit to remember how much help he has been. It is a good discipline to calm yourself down and to look at the specific ways in your life that God has been good. Even when you're facing death. Even when your loved ones are facing death. Right? That's him. Be humble. Be grateful. Remind yourself. But not only... But, but, you, but don't stop there. You don't only remind yourself of what God has done for you. You need to, number four, remind God of what he's promised you. Look at verse 9. O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. Do you see what he's doing? Oh wait, God, you told me to go home. And now my brother is coming toward me with a military force. Oh, God, you said you were going to be good to me. You told me to go home. I mean, can you see this? God told Jacob, go home. Jacob goes home, and here is murder, attack coming his way. Isn't the logical thing to say, wait a minute. God, you told me to go. He's reminding God. Look at verse 12. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered. Right? He's reminding God, God, this doesn't work. You told me to go home. You told me you would bless me that my children would live. But they are about to die. This is, this is fundamental. I mentioned it last week. It is so important to remember it again. When we are asking God for help. At the center of it. Must be reminding God of his promises. So, if you grew up in a Christian family, whenever Christianity entered your family, God made promises to the people it entered with and to their children. This is all through the Bible. 
That's the thing. God of my father. Abraham, God of my father Isaac, on the day of Pentecost, what must we do to be saved? This promise is for you and your children. God has always, I preached a sermon on this several weeks ago, a fundamental way God works in this world is that when he enters a family, there is a spiritual inheritance. In the same similar way that if a family's wealthy, there are laws in our land that it, that of inheritance. So listen, guys. Here's the way I do it when I'm in trouble. God... On my father's side, two generations ago. On my mother's side, three generations ago. You promised my family. You brought us into your family. And you made promises. That's exactly what Jacob does here. God of Abraham, God of Isaac. It's interesting when he says, you said I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. God never actually said that to Jacob. He said that to Abraham. He said something similar to Jacob, but not that. You know what Jacob's done? He's just slid a promise to Abraham to himself and claimed it. That's the way God works in this world. I preached on that several weeks ago. God works through families. Now, that doesn't mean you can kick back on your laurels. We talked all about that. But what I'm showing you is that we must remind God of his promises. Now, when you were baptized, God sealed you with those promises. He put his Holy Spirit on you. Baptism is more than anything else what God does to you. Less, it's what you're declaring about God. So I grew up as a Baptist. And I read the scriptures as a Baptist that in baptism, I'm declaring my allegiance to God. That is true for adult converts. Just like adult converts to Judaism, they would get circumcision as a declaration of their loyalty to God. But for second generation Jews and second generation Christians, baptism happens before a person can make a conscious articulation of loyalty. That's why in the Old Testament, once, Judea, once God's entered into a family, circumcision occurred to infants. And then it kept going into the New Testament that slid into baptism. This promise is for you and your children. Baptize the Philippian jailer and his household. But here's what I want you to see. A fundamental issue is where is the weight of baptism? When you are baptized, the most, the biggest thing happening is what God is doing. The minor thing happening is what the person getting baptized is doing. Yes, when you get baptized, you're declaring allegiance. But you know what? Your allegiance is far more fickle than God's. And so when you are in trouble, Martin Luther, right? The prince of the Reformation. Justification by faith. I'm not talking about salvation by works. Martin Luther said in his darkest hour when he doubts and barely has faith, he reminds himself, but Luther, you were baptized. He didn't remember his baptism. He was baptized as an infant. When my children, if they ever get to a day where they doubt or they really spears... You know how we will fix them? If Seamus Trainum ever doubts he's a Trainum, you know how we'll fix him? There are 200 people that remember when he was born. And they will say, we know you were born and we know who you were born to. Those of you who are doubting your salvation, the church says to you, we know you're a Christian. We were there. When you were baptized, 
There's great comfort in this. Now, obviously, I talked to all of it. There's detail. There's nuances to this. We rely on the promises of God. This is the main point I want to make. And look, if you want to talk about can somebody fall away from the faith? Can they reject their baptismal vows? I'm not dealing with that. I'm trying to make this point. This is, this is what I want you to hear. We rely on the promises of God by reminding God of those promises in prayer. You stand on God's promises, not in some ooey-gooey way, but in a very particular way. By reminding God of those promises when you need them in prayer. Isn't that our passage from Luke 18? The passage that I read to us for our gospel reading, Luke 18. Jesus told them a parable to the effect they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Tells a story about this widow who's in trouble and a judge is not helping her. In in verse 6, the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says and will not God give justice to his elect? What does that mean? Those in the covenant who cry to him day and night. Will he delay long over them? Now, this leads us to the fifth thing I want to say about Jacob's prayer. It is this. When we pray, not only do we remind ourselves of what God has done for us and remind God of what he's promised us, but fifthly, we ask him for help. Get down to business. Ask him for specific help. Look, back in chapter 32, Jacob didn't say, oh God, give me peace in my difficult times. That's not what he prayed. What did he pray? He said, holy cow, I'm about to die. Please, don't let me die. Don't let my wives die. Don't let their children die. Shoot the moon. Name it. Fervently ask specifically for the help you need. That's what Jesus teaches us in Luke chapter 18. That's what we see that um, Jacob has learned so well. It's interesting, in Luke 18, Jesus said, I'm going to tell you a story so you will actually pray. And then in the story, the woman getting help depends on her asking for help. We pray because we know God acts differently if we don't pray. Prayer is not some magic shell game. Fervently ask for help because you know that God will help if you ask him for it. And if you don't, He might not. Prayer matters. Prayer works. So now at the beginning of the sermon, I said real prayer doesn't come easily or naturally. And here we see some of the inner principles of Jacob's mature praying. Call on God by name. Let the thoughts that fill your heart come to him. Remember his gifts with gratitude. Remind him of his promises. And fervently ask for specific help. Now look, college students, some of you are going to need this in about... Two and a half months, right? Holy moly. Um, I need your help, Lord. I'm facing these finals or this, that, or the other. This is a model prayer for help. Now, to be able to do this, like I said, it takes practice. This does not come naturally. It takes practice. Look look at it this way. When we look at Jesus' prayer life in the Gospels, we see two things about Jesus. Jesus took part in synagogue and temple worship. He was an observant Jew. He followed the usual prayer patterns of the Jews in his part of the world. And we know from from archaeology, we know from other texts, and we know from the Bible that this at least involved 
two prayer times a day. Prayer in the morning and prayer in the evening. So I encourage you, do that. Continue the pattern of daily morning and evening prayer. I can't tell you how soul-shaping this has been in my own life. From the time I was a baby, my parents taught me to do this. They taught me how to pray. They taught me to do this. Now, I've not always kept the discipline perfectly. But it has been the basic rhythm of my entire life. I really would have a hard time pointing to a, a time in my life where I wasn't praying in the morning and the evenings. The rhythm of a daily time with God will shape your life in all sorts of ways. It shapes you deeply. Every day you need to meet with God in prayer. Don't let this depend on how you feel about praying. No, that's a type of prayer. There's definitely a type of prayer that when you feel it, you let it out there. That's not what I'm talking about. Remember, I said great praying requires practice. Practice takes disciplines that become habits. You will, not be, you will not mature in your prayer life unless you make praying a disciplined habit of your life. And the best, the best way to do that is to just set a time in the morning and set a time in the evening when you pray. Now, I have some specific suggestions on that. I'm going to give you some homework. Over the next week, I encourage you, set aside a specific time and a specific place every day where you will pray for 10 or 15 minutes. Just, just do this. Uh, parents, if you have kids, I don't know, eight years and up, seven years and up, do this with them. Parents do this. All of us do this. Set a time. Now, some, a lot of you already have this. Some of you don't. Some of you are out of the habit. So this is like a little nudge. Get back in the habit. 10 or 15 minutes. It's great to do it in the morning. It's great to do it in the evening. Do it in the middle of the day. Set a time. Number two, set a place. Place matters. Jesus often chose to climb a mountain, enter a garden, depart to the desert, or rest in a boat. Outside or inside, wherever you are most comfortable, find a specific time and a specific place and go back to that place over and over. It might be in your closet or a corner of your room or a special chair. It's true you can pray anywhere and anytime. That's just not the kind of praying I'm talking about. Now, once that time arrives, what do you do? Here's my, here's my encouragement to you. Get a candle or an icon. I love using a candle. Light the candle. Because Jesus is the light of the world. I remember that I'm in the presence of Christ. Take a deep breath. Let it out. Don't be afraid of mysticism. Just be afraid of bad mysticism. Light your candle. Look at your, this icon. And I can, it can be a cross. My dad for, for decades prayed with a, um, a wood carving of Christ as the good shepherd with the sheep. He would, in front of him, he would just take a deep breath and remember that our creator is our shepherd who loves us. And then he'd enter into the holy place of prayer. Find a way to do this. You live in a crammed life, carve out one little corner that you can do this. High school students... This saved me my senior year of high school. Six o'clock every morning, 10 or 15 minutes at a desk in my room, praying. If it hadn't been for that, I, I would not have been able to make it through my senior year with Christian integrity. Then once you take that deep breath and remember that you're in the presence of God, read scripture. This is not free-floating prayer. 
We have to connect our prayer life to Scripture. One of the things that makes mysticism goofy is when mysticism gets disconnected from Scripture. But a mysticism rooted in Scripture is quite a powerful thing. So read Scripture. Now, look, if you don't know where to start, start here. Just read this prayer, Genesis 32, 9 through 12. Or pick one of the Gospels and read through it paragraph by paragraph, different paragraph each day. Read the book of Proverbs, whatever day of the month it is. Read that chapter of Proverbs. Today's the uh, 30th. Read Proverbs chapter 30. Just pick somewhere. Anywhere is better than nowhere. Lots of places are better than other places. If you have a hard time figuring it. Look, some of the Bible you turn to, you try to read it. You can't make heads or tails of it. For the sake of the experiment I'm describing for you this morning, skip those parts, okay? Stay out of Revelation. If you're not married, stay away from Song of Solomon. Um, if you haven't read the Bible much, don't even touch, I don't know, Ezekiel. Find a nice, easy spot. I'm not joking. Nice, easy Find a good place, a good time, and a good, easy passage of Scripture. Read it. You know, take the deep breath, light the candle, read the Scripture, and then here's what you do. Allow your mind to focus on whatever in the passage catches your attention. These are God's words. It might be an intense emotion. It might be an action. It might be a troublesome phrase. It might be an actually what something means. Allow your mind to focus on it. And then as your mind and your heart are filled with that insight from Scripture, tell God whatever comes into your mind, whatever comes into your heart. You're with Jesus. Talk to him. And, and, and pray like Jacob prays. Call on, call on God by name. Be gracious. Tell God thank you for things you can be thank you for, thankful for. Remind him of his promises. Boldly ask for the help you need. I'm, I'm having a terrible... I've got... The doctors have said I've got this pinched nerve in my back right now. I'm in terrible pain. So on my walk over here from my office, I'm praying. God, this morning, I need you. I, can't, I don't feel like I can lift my head up. I need you to help me do that. Ask God specifically for what you need. Do this for seven days. How long does it take to establish habit? Like 20-something days. Go for it. Now back to where we started, and I'll wrap up. And I think you might need to turn the air, the air back on. I don't know. Uh, this is dangerous, directing from up here. I am, I'm losing weight, uh, which I guess is probably good. Maybe that's the strategy. Okay, I'll wrap up with this. Jacob suffered, and through his suffering, he grew into a better person. Now, let, come back with me. Come back. Let's bring this back around. You will suffer. And suffering will change you. It will either ruin you or improve you. A few years ago, I read this fun series of novel, novels by C.J. Sansom. I, I think Barbara turned me on to these. They're set in England in the 16th century. And they're basically detective novels. The lead character is Matthew, Matthew Shardlake. He's the smartest hunchback lawyer in the courts of King Henry VIII. And at the center of one of the novels is a young girl named Elizabeth. She suffered so deeply, she has completely given up on life. And at one of the darkest moments in the story, she says this. First mother died so painfully from the great lump in her chest that wasted her to nothing. Then father died too. I sought consolation in prayer. I entreated God to help me understand, but I seemed to be praying into a great dark silence. 
Then I was told our house was lost. Our house, where I grew up and was happy. The grandparents I was sent to live with did not want me. And I knew it. Then she describes how cruelly her cousins treated her. And she finally exclaims, What I've come to understand is that God is cruel and wicked. He favors the wicked, as anyone who looks around this world can see. I've read the book of Job. I've read the torments God inflicted on his faithful servant. I've asked God to tell me how he can do so much evil. But he doesn't even reply. My faith is gone. I wait for my death so I may spit in God's face for all of his cruelty. Suffering changes people. It changes some people like that. If you've ever suffered severely, you know of the cliff edge we walk. And unless somehow we are held, then on a daily basis, especially at night, we face despair. The problem is that suffering, extreme suffering, isolates us. It cuts us off from people, from those who want to help. It isolates, it drives a person in on themselves. It makes us think that nobody could know what it's like. Just look at the statistics of marriage breakups after losing a child. When we suffer, it can so easily break us. We should never romanticize it. It can crush the joy and the life out of us permanently. It can lead us to make others suffer and and enter into this vicious spiral of hurting people who hurt people. But we can also suffer well. We We can go through our suffering and emerge more compassionate, more gentle, more... Of who God made us to be. How? Well there's a deep mystery. But certainly. Learning how to pray skillfully for help. Is a critical resource. God has given us. For the dark times of life. Learning. It takes practice. And let's let Jacob's prayer be our guide. Let's pray.